Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this episode, we have two segments. First, Anne from PKP Podcast joins in to discuss the Japanese and English ending themes of the second Pokemon movie. We go over production details, analyze the songs, and then determine which one we like better. For the second segment, I interview Try from the My Life in Gaming YouTube channel. Their channel covers retro video games with a focus on how to get optimal picture and sound quality from original hardware. We discuss the origins of the channel and their upcoming Game Boy episode. Finally, after the outro, stick around here Anne and I discuss some of the other songs from the Pokemon 2000 soundtrack. Thanks. Hi. I'm Steven Reich from the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Anne from PKP Podcast, and we're going to do another one of these. You may remember in a previous installment, we compared the Japanese and English ending themes of the first Pokemon movie. We compared Together with the Wind versus We Are a Miracle. And uh, now we're going to move on to the second movie. So this is going to be Twadma. Versus the power of one. We may discuss some of the other songs, particularly on the English side, but that's going to be the main focus of our comparison for this installment. So first off, let's start off with the uh, the Japanese song uh, "Twad Ma." Uh, and why don't you go ahead and sort of introduce that? Okay, uh, so "Twad Ma" was uh, the ending theme for the Japanese release. Um, it was performed by Amaro Namie very, very famous J-pop star, and produced by TK Kamura Tetsuyo. Let's see, it, we don't think it was uh, released specifically for the movie, but it does, the lyrics do seem to work out quite well. And one interesting bit of trivia is one uh, song kind of that took place sort of at a time when Amuro was kind of making a musical transition. So she was kind of moving away from the really cutesy pop sound and kind of into a more dance-based R&B kind of urban sound. And a lot of people consider that her first single in that genre. So, And why don't you tell us a little bit about her, since obviously we know much more in uh, America here about Donna Summer. <laughs> On the English side, tell us about this uh, this J-pop artist. And okay, um, so she's from Okinawa, which is uh, an island kind of in the real south section of Japan, real tropical area. Um, came up through the Okinawa Actors School, so kind of a, a performing arts program specifically for like J-pop type singers. They produced a lot of of the famous uh, J-pop of that time, like um, Yamada Yu and Speed and those people. Um, she got into the pop genre and then kind of, uh, because she has kind of a more of a powerful, really emotive voice, kind of started getting into a lot more um, R&B type of tracks, a lot more soulful, passionate music instead of the cute, cute poppy numbers. And she, yeah, she's just been a steady name through J-pop. She's released a lot of pop tracks I yeah, I don't know what to say about her. She's she's been on a lot of anime, so I kind of guarantee that you have heard her music if you are at all interested in anime and soundtracks and theme songs. She she's just had a real good presence with that. So like if you're into Inuyasha or something, you've heard her doing like Four Seasons, 
And uh, can you tell us anything about the uh, the writing slash producing um, team? Uh, what their background is? Uh, Komuro Tetsuya. He works. Uh, he's a producer um, who does a lot of work with Avex, um, and I think Sony as well. He's kind of one of the big names in producing over in Japan. He's done a lot of pop artists. He's also done Hitomi and like just a lot of those big names. I, I don't know much to say about the songwriting, his style, because he does seem to kind of go across the board. Like he just has a lot of different artists that he's worked with and, um, but definitely kind of in the pop genre. Yeah, so uh, on the flip side, on the English side, we have The Power of One, which, of course, uh, was performed by Donna Summer, longtime uh, musician. Unfortunately, of course, she passed away about four years ago from when we were recording this, but uh, certainly left an outstanding career in music, uh, going back primarily to the disco era is where she probably hit the, the peak of her popularity in terms of chart hits with stuff like, you know, hot stuff. She works hard for the money, things like that. As far as this song, it was co-written by Mark Chait and Mervyn Warren. Uh, some of you will remember earlier in 2016, I had a chance to interview Mark Chait and we learned quite a bit of, of things there. Uh, a lot of that will probably make it in here, but there is a, an interview out there if you'd like to take a look. Uh, produced by David Foster, as I, if I recall correctly, and, and uh, basically this was written for the movie. In fact, as you probably guessed, the opening riff is Lugia's song, which started out in the score um, and then was incorporated into this song. So that's the, the order things went in there. And uh, that's sort of the, the setup we have on this side. All right, so let's let's talk about some of our observations. Let's start with uh, Trois de Maux. Uh, which of course is French, and in case you, for some reason, didn't know, uh, you and me is uh, the basic translation there. Uh, what's your overall impression, Anne, of sort of the, the style of the piece? It's definitely a, a departure from the ending theme of the last movie. I think it was a very interesting choice, uh, to start off with a song, again, that was so poppy, you know, kind of had the, that, the English lyrics too. Like it just, for us who speak English, it's kind of off-putting because <laughs> they're not quite as as fluid as we might hope. For I I don't know how a Japanese audience would have reacted to that. I mean, obviously English is used a lot in pop music over there, but again, it's just kind of a departure from the the feel that they were going for just one movie prior. So I, I, and that's kind of how I find the song. Like it's beautiful and interesting, but it does kind of have that weird tonal shift from like the English almost rap section into like these more melodic choruses. And I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's a, it feels all over the place in a strange way. <laughs> like, I don't know how I feel about it. I, if I like it or not, it's, but it's definitely interesting. There are some interesting choices made. <laughs> Yeah, I'll give you that. Uh, obviously, if you do listen to it as a as an American or or you know, an English speaker, those are the the English phrases are going to be the ones that you you hear there. Obviously, the the uh, singer wasn't as as proficient. It's really better than my Japanese, but you know, not totally proficient in English either. But uh, I'll give her credit for putting in a good attempt. Yeah, there. clearly it meant something to the person who wrote it, and but like for us, it, it's like that. I'm not sure what you're trying to say. (laughs) 
there definitely seems to be some sort of like relationship mechanic yeah. there. Right? Is that sort of reflected also in the Japanese side of the lyrics? Definitely, definitely. Can you give us a little bit of a, a sample of sort of the the overall arc of the song? Sort of a like standing by your side kind of a feel. Devotion, like fighting for your love and being a warrior. And there's kind of like a sense of like the relationship has passed. So like, you know, I'm looking back almost on this and even as we move forward and we're apart, you know, I'm still going to fight for these things that were important, fighting against fate, maybe. So it's kind of like, even though maybe for some reason, these people have either grown apart or have been physically separated, that this relationship is still important to the singer. Do you feel that does uh, a, a good tie-in to the movie at all? Like we said, this wasn't written for it. Do you feel right. it, it ties into the movie in any particular way? I do, because, I don't know, it starts off uh, just kind of your typical, you know, relationship song, but then the lyrics get increasingly more epic, and they start talking about, like, digging deep to find courage and... and undefeatable situations and it kind of seems to herald that kind of situation that was in the movie of like you know misty and ash kind of being in the center of the apocalypse and and, you know for my friends for the people i care about i'm going to dig deep and you know do the things that only i can do talking about protecting other people and crying through you know the wanting to love each other and all those things. I think it does, not as strongly as I would say The Power of One does, though. And we'll definitely get to that. One thing I kind of felt might be kind of missing from it is that, at least listening as a non-Japanese speaker, it kind of just kind of fades out and ends at the end. It's not like with the first movie, Together with the Wind, where there is sort of a resolution at the end. It just sort of... Uh, fades out. And maybe if you could understand the lyrics, um, maybe that feels a bit more fitting. But to me, it sort of makes it kind of not feel complete as a movie ending song. Do you, you get what I'm saying there? I do. And and I agree. I, you almost think it, it needs a strong finish. Like, again, this is kind of a weird song, but full of interesting choices. Because lyrically, the end lyrics are kind of repeating... Like that sense of a, a destiny that can't be changed, but I'm going to try anyway. So that repetition of the last few phrases into the fade out of like, you know, like I can't change it. So I can't have a strong finish, but yet I still think it's important to keep singing kind of a feel. Like, I think that's an interesting choice, but again, not one that really satisfies your soul in a movie ending theme. Do you think this would have been a better song to use, maybe as an insert song somewhere in the movie? Absolutely. This this is a perfect song for that soundtrack. Of all the songs on that CD, it is not the one I would have chosen to be the ending theme, except for the fact that it's got Amuro's name attached to it, which probably moves units. Is there a, a different song either on the soundtrack or in in that uh that artist's repertoire that you might think might think would be a better for, say, the end credits? On the CD itself, absolutely Minagai Takara should have been, in my opinion. Oh, that should have been the ending themes. <laughs> but, oh, of Amaro's, though. Oh, she has so many songs. 
I'll, I'd have to look up the lyrics for Say the Word again, but I remember thinking when I was young that that was a very, there was something very Pokemon about that song. But I don't know if it would have been the best for this movie. You mentioned another song that was on the soundtrack there. Can you go into a little detail of what that song is and how it actually was used? Um, yeah, Mina Gaitakara um, is a song uh, sung by Rika Matsumoto, who does Ash's voice or Satoshi's. And it's a song, uh, the title translates to Because Everyone Was There. And the idea of it is like, because of all the people cheering me on or because of all the people who needed me, I was able to accomplish this. And it's so, it is, it is about the movie. And it is from Satoshi's point of view, singing about how he feels about the events of the movie. And there's some beautiful lines about like, grown to understand, you know, the differences between a battle and a fight and between like struggles and pain and things like that. Like, realizing that there's a very big difference between like you know the fun pokemon battles he has and like this all-out war that's you know happened in the pokemon world now and you know because everybody was there to help him when he didn't think he could rise to the occasion he was able to become like the hero and kind of in that sense everybody was just as important like and it ah tears crying it's just so beautiful but yeah, it, it was definitely written for this movie and about this movie, and it never appeared in the film. It's only on the soundtrack. Um, the, the melody character and the, the villain character, um, Lawrence the Third, they also both get songs that are about them that don't appear mm -hmm. in the movie. So I, I'm thinking that was their concept, obviously, but it, it, to me, it's just a shame because Binagai Takara kind of sums up the whole theme of the movie. And the point. <laughs> Would you have been okay if they had had like twat and all at the start of the credits and then at the end they had ended with part of that song that you just mentioned? Yeah. Like I, I, I think it deserved certainly a little more prominence in the credits and the film than it got. But again, I business <laughs> having, having a recognizable name. Attached sure. to your song helps a lot when you're trying to make a profit on things. So, yeah, Namie definitely was the, the the seller there. You could even put that maybe in in print on the on the poster or something like that to draw people. And I bet that would would help there more so than 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 Rika having the, the ending song. Yeah. All the same, business decisions sometimes work out e that exactly. way. Exactly. Like, certainly, certainly, Namie was a bigger deal than Pokemon was at the time of this CD release. So, that may sound hard to believe to some of our listeners, but, uh, I know. Yeah. Now, now Pokemon kind of takes over the country, but. All right. Well, let's flip over back to the, to the English side then with the Power of Warren, where they were able to get an absolutely immensely important, uh, and popular artist, um, yeah. but also to write a song specifically for the uh, ending of the movie. Let's actually start at the beginning of The Power of One. It starts off with this, um, I don't know if it's actually a flute, but some sort of woodwind instrument playing Lugia's song from the movie, which is the basis for the main melody in The Power of One song. 
obviously that sort of ties things together more so than Twatma could have done since it's a, a totally separate work there. Do you think that was a good choice for them to sort of try and tie those two things together? Yeah, no, I love that, that the opening flute and then slowly, slowly building it's such a beautiful choice. I'm really happy that they decide to do that, especially since, as you say, this was written for the movie that they just connected it on all fronts, musically as well as lyrically. And the first vocal we really hear is is Donna Summer saying, you must always remember, which is kind of a, an interesting way. What do, what do you think of that introduction there? I, a very interesting choice. Like, I wouldn't... If I were like making the song myself, I wouldn't have put it there. I wouldn't have thought it needed it. But every time she she says it and I listen to this the song, a little shiver goes down my spine. So I think I think it was the right choice in the end. Like I don't know, there's something very personal about it. And and I kind of like that for the the nature of this movie that it doesn't start out kind of like a big, you know, full-voiced singing that she starts out just talking to you. Like there's something special about that. And then we get the first verse, you know, life can be a challenge, life can seem impossible, it's never easy when so much is on the line, which is, is basically the sort of the setup to sort of the scenario that's presented in, in the movie mm-hmm. that goes from, you know, the characters eventually realize, hey, this isn't just some legend that belongs to some island, we're living it. And then they realize that they're the only people who can sort of set things right and, and, and sort of cure this imbalance that's happening. So you, you do have a definite parallel there. And, and then we get to the first chorus, which, you know, sort of describes this sort of process uh, type deal that's going on now that I think about it. It sort of trails the uh, where the, the quote-unquote power of one comes from, how it comes together, and what its effect is. Uh, doesn't it kind of do that now that you think about it? Yeah, like, I, I really love these words. Like, it starts in the heart, grows to the soul, changes the world. Um, I think it's really interesting that a, a song titled The Power of One in its chorus talks about the importance of standing in unity. And in the movie, like, so much emphasis is um, both in the character's dialogue and the marketing and everything that went with it is promoting, like, you know, the one person, the chosen one, the power of one, you know, one person can make a difference. But really, the true theme of the movie is how everybody stands together. And that's what changes the world when everyone does their one part. It's not that one person rises above and is better. And I really like that this song kind of acknowledges both like your individual power, what makes you special, and then how when you stand up and do your one part, the thing that only you can do, and inspire other people to act with you, then the power of one becomes the power of everybody, and we we stand in unity, and each of us holds the key. Like, that's just so brilliant. Like, I don't know, I think it's a theme that often got overlooked in the promotion of the movie, but this song found it again and brought it to the surface. That is interesting. And some people do kind of bring that up as a criticism of the movie that Ash doesn't do it all by himself, as the name of the the movie would kind of imply. But this song sort of, I guess, sort of points out that there's a duality, that each individual piece is important, 
because without it, you know, without the, the critical pieces, the whole thing falls apart. But together, you can do something that is more than any individual person could do by themselves, which is, is kind of, it, it's, it's not about one person so much as it is one cause, one idea that a bunch of parties work together towards to make something really important happen, or in the case of the movie, to sort of prevent things from from spiraling completely out of control <laughs> yeah. and consuming the, the you know potentially the entire world. There, yeah, exactly. Like Ash is the only one who could have you know activated the magical sphery things, but Melody was the only one who could play the song after Lugia fainted, and Misty was the only one with the swimming skills to dig Ash out of the ocean and. Like, and somebody had to stand on the shore to make sure Misty didn't get swept away by the waves. So that was Tracy's one thing. And like, you know, all of them, Lugia being able to ferry Ash and protect him from the birds, like everybody had the one thing that only they could do and they had to be there for it. And so, it, yeah, it's like, it is the power of one, but it is also the power of unity. And that's beautiful how it comes together in this music. What what is your what part of the song sticks out most to you? Like I said, that that overall structure is what I I noticed when I was listening to it earlier today. Is that where it it builds? I, I'm sure I'd noticed it before, uh, but it and then the the resolution at the end, you know, is sort of it brings back you know Lugia's theme at the end of the song, but in a way not in really a cyclical way or not in sort of a a way that it. It isn't diminished uh, from or exactly where it started. It's sort of like we built up to this great thing, and now we can sort of relax and and things have been righted or something like that. I, that's the, like the best way I can uh, describe it at the moment, unfortunately. Sort of a an emotional catharsis, maybe. Like, yeah. Now we're talking about Lugia's theme, which is. More or less specific, at least it's different in the dub. Does Lugia have a, a theme in the Japanese version of the movie? He does. It's it's not really called Lugia's theme. It's I don't think. I believe it's kind of called I've seen it translated as like the heartbeat of the earth or the earth moving. Um so I think it's it, it's definitely associated with Lugia, but I think officially it's more the the sound of nature. <laughs> so but yeah, no, Lugia definitely has its own theme and the theme that is, you know, present when it activates its song that um, Melody plays on her flute. So I, I think it, yeah, I think it's more treated as the sound of the ocean that Lugia sings and not so much Lugia's song specifically. But it's it's kind of similar in a lot of ways, though, I think. I mean, it, they're both kind of using that same kind of scale in the same similar basis and kind of that minor key, I guess. So I, I suppose it's not that ridiculous that they sound similar, but I, I do kind of feel that the English version was inspired by what came before. And I suppose while we're here talking about Lugia's theme, we should say that, you know, there is sort of this, they are separate pieces of music. You know, the score came first and then that riff was used to sort of build on to create the power of one song. But, you know, it's, it's really created sort of a, a memorable, um, combination there. And it's hard for me to say whether the power of one song helped keep 
the Lugia's theme popular, or if Lugia's theme helps tie into the power of one song. They're they're kind of kind of joined there, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Uh, do you have any thoughts in that in that regard? I agree. There's something kind of wonderful about that. In in that you know, so many times a a movie will have a song in its end credits or a song that's kind of associated with the movie. But they'll try really hard to push it so that that song can stand on its own as a single. And I think there's something wonderful that this song, because of the riff at the beginning and everything, it's almost indistinguishable from the movie. Like, you know, you can't hear The Power of One without hearing that riff. Um, Well, as it was recorded, obviously, you could do a remix, but... Like, I don't know. I, I really like that choice to have it be like, you know, this is a song for the movie and it's, it's going to tie in in every possible way and not be something a little bit separate. Does that make it seem more cohesive in a way? Yes. And more of a deliberate artistic choice because it feels like a decision that isn't made from a business standpoint, you know, like it rather than focus on the single being able to appeal to, you know, the world who is not listening to Pokemon, this is going to be something we create specifically for Pokemon. And it's going to, you know, even the music is going to herald back to the little riff that was playing in the movie. It feels like a very artistic choice and has a lot of integrity. And that kind of speaks to me. Like I always, even if the choice is different or weird or I don't like it. I love when creators can make a, a clear and defined choice about something. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Well, basically, I feel like the uh, the two are are more or less inseparable. They are, like I said, one is, is it originated in the score and then was used to create this song, but they're such a, a unit that one brings to mind the other and I think it makes the second movie feel more like a purposely designed package than the first movie does, where they had to sort of piece together the soundtrack from what they could find, what they had submitted to them. And, and like I said, you know, We Are a Miracle became, was an excellent choice and it was, I'm glad it was there. But having this opportunity to sort of tie everything together, I think, makes the second movie to me at least feel more as a as a, a work and as a product feel more integrated. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a creative vision almost. W- would you definitely say all the other tracks on the um second movie soundtrack kind of follow that like seem to be a- have been chosen with a bit more care and choice than maybe the first movie soundtrack? You know, in, in some ways, yes. Uh, this is going, getting to another point I wanted to, to talk about maybe a little bit later is that I think, I think the overall quality of the music on the second movie soundtrack and the first movie soundtrack are roughly equal. There are maybe some songs on each one that outshine the other a little bit. But I, I do kind of wonder, and I guess we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, is whether or not the power of one is actually so prominent that it causes uh, what I like to call, to paraphrase Lord of the Rings, the one song to rule them all problem. Um, and I do kind of wonder if maybe this song was so prominent that it may have overshadowed some of the other stuff. But getting back to the soundtrack itself, the second movie soundtrack is much more, a lot of that, more of the songs were written for the movie. Um, they brought in some, some very... Um, 
skilled people to write uh, the songs that were original. They re-edited or rewrote some other stuff uh, to do that. So it's more of a produced soundtrack rather than purely curated like the first movie. Very few of the songs are written for it. The second movie, more of them are. I think there are valid points and valid arguments for both approaches. But I think the way it resulted in this particular song is just absolutely excellent. They had a a very good writing team. They had a very good uh, singer, obviously, in Donna Summer. And, you know, it just all sort of fit together there. I agree completely. This is both the English and Japanese soundtracks for this movie are my favorite of all the Pokemon movies, like just as a whole. They're, I just think both of them were just so well done and well well chosen for whether the songs were curated or, or, you know, just slightly edited or whether they were written specifically for the movie. Like everything was came together for a reason, it felt like. And I just think the listening experience overall is so much more than I get from any of the other soundtracks. Well, you had mentioned earlier about remixes, and actually both of these songs have at least one remix. Uh, Twat Mod does have something called the ANSNY Bounce Remix, which has some, it's extended, it's got sort of a different, it's more electronica based. Do you, uh, do you like that remix? What do you think about it? Um, I like it as something that I might listen to on occasion and be like, oh, that's interesting, or I'm, you know, might dance to it. I don't really like it as a Pokemon song, but it's, it's common for singles to, you know, have remixes like that. So, I don't dislike it, but I, I don't feel, I don't feel it's an improvement over what I wanted from the song, which is, you know, to kind of reawaken those feelings that I get when I watch the movie. And I just don't, I don't feel the remix adds anything to that in the way that there's at least one of the Donna Summer, uh, Power of One remixes. Um, oh gosh, it's the second one that. I should point out. Let's let's go over. Yeah, let's go over that. Power of One has basically eight different official remixes. <laughs> um, the way they were distributed is there's uh, four of them are on a CD uh, that you could uh, get at the time, and then what they had is there's also a two LP, as in long playing record set that has uh, two remixes on each side of the two records, so eight remixes total. It has everything from that CD plus four additional tracks. So that's that's the the remixes for the power of one, and you can divide them into basically two different groups because there were two different remixers, and most of it follows along those lines. So there's Jonathan Peters, who is a very well known remixer, DJ, stuff like that, did a series of remixes, and then there's Tommy Musto, who did a, really one main remixes that's iterated a, a, a few different ways. But in any case, the, the Jonathan Peters is much more, again, an electronica type of feel, um, you know, sort of a, something you would hear in a, in a club or something like that. Um, there's a couple different variations, if, especially if you take a look at the, the vinyl version has about four or five different uh, sort of iterations there. Uh, my personal favorite of the ones he did is the Sound Factory remix. He, he does, or did at least, a number of what are called Sound Factory, where he would use a lot of percussion-type sounds. And the thing I like about the Sound Factory remix of The Power of One is I think um, it's more suited to sort of, if you wanted to pair it up, 
uh, with the um, action elements of the movie, like um, when they're going across the 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 big plane of ice that's there and, and other stuff like that, I think that would be well suited. It's also worth knowing that in some of these remixes, the the vocals are sped up. I don't think that it's actually a secondary recording, like they didn't record a slow and a fast version. I think they used uh, computer technology to speed up the vocals uh, for the remixes to make them a little more uh, dance-friendly, I guess you could say. Um, do you have any particular opinions on the Jonathan Peters uh, series of remixes? Um, I listened to his club mix i kind of agree with you like it it kind of seems to fit like you know the more action oriented side of the movie and, and that's kind of what i was getting at with the toi moi remix is that i don't really get anything out of that one but this jonathan peters remix of the power of one i feel that that does add a little something to it not that i would replace it obviously but like i do feel that i get a different dimension of the song and its connection to my movie out of that particular remix, more so than, like, say, the Tommy Musto one. Yeah, let's talk about the Tommy Musto one. It, yeah, that one's interesting. Yeah, to me, it's it's really just one remix. There's a couple different sort of, like, compartmentalizations of it, I guess is the best word I can think of. But uh, what it is effectively is it it gives it sort of this 70s disco dance club vibe that you would have gotten back then, which is kind of, you know, given the artist, Donna Summer, that was when she sort of rose to fame was in the 70s with, like I said, a lot of disco-type hits uh, back then. So it sort of it brings sort of the adult audience to the, to the movie if they heard this version, sort of brings them back to how they were probably introduced to Donna Summer. Um, which is just kind of an interesting choice on, on, on Tommy's part there to, to get that, uh, type of a sound out there. And they've got some good instruments in there and they've got some backup singers that they added. And it's kind of a neat production. Yeah. There's something very like light and summery about it. Um, which, which almost doesn't seem to fit like the opening lyrics, but it, it's such an interesting sound. Yeah, so that was kind of a, a neat choice there, I have to say. I do think I kind of prefer, if we're going back to the first movie, there's a number of remixes of Don't Say You Love Me. I think I kind of prefer the diversity more there, but I also, I like both sets of remixes, and I'm really glad we, we got stuff like that. I'd love to have like more official remix type stuff of Pokemon songs in the future. Hopefully we get a, a chance for that sometime. Definitely, definitely. We should also point out there's also like some sort of uh, commercially unreleased remix I was able to find a YouTube video for. I wasn't as super um, excited about it. It's okay for what it is. I don't think the editing's quite as uh, tight in mm -hmm. in that version that we found. Um, well, I suppose while we're talking about Power One, we, we kind of talk about sort of the lasting cultural impact, which you you might not <laughs> have expected. You know, right away. But as time has gone on, we've we've come to realize some of these things there um, that have gone on. Now, back in the year 2000, it was used um, by NBC for some of their end-of-day highlight reels from the uh, Summer Olympics that were in Australia. And uh, that strikes me, in retrospect, as actually a very good choice. You know, the song doesn't explicitly mention Pokemon, so you can use it in other contexts. But what really kind of strikes me about it is, first of all, it has a very sort of triumphant feel to it as you listen to it. So it works very well with sports highlights. And the fact that it is 
A, a Donna Summer song and B, a Pokemon song means that it appeals to both older people who are familiar with Donna Summer's previous works and also younger people at the time, at least, who would have been into Pokemon. Uh, do you kind of agree with that assessment? Definitely, yeah. And yeah, with it being kind of just that triumphant feel, it does work perfectly for the Olympics and lyrically as well. Like, the Olympics is one time where you believe we can have world peace for five minutes. Like, what better time to have a song about many individual people coming together and, and, and you know, building unity? Yeah, and it's, it's a perfect fit that I, I didn't realize until you brought it up does work across multiple generations. Yeah, so that's what happened there. And uh, knowing that, it wasn't part of the Olympics proper, the, the Olympic Committee. It wasn't using any of the ceremonies or anything like that. It was just something NBC used at like the end of the day for some of their highlight reels. And that eventually led to it appearing in some places you might not have expected. Um, I guess we got to talk about the uh, the elephant in the room and actually also another animal. Um, yes, I was specifically a donkey. So. Yeah. Uh, no insult intended to either. But uh, it turns out that, um, you know, four years ago, we heard lines from this movie repeated at a political debate and in some speeches by a man by the name of Herman Cain. And, you know, I guess you got to give the song something there. Did that kind of surprise you when you when you found out about that? It totally did. And it. It, it totally caught me by surprise. I hadn't been following his campaign or anything. Like, so I almost wonder if it wasn't a good move because once that hit the internet that some politician was quoting Pokemon, suddenly he got a lot of attention. <laughs> yeah. Like, if it was a deliberate move in that sense. We'd have to talk to a speechwriter to find out why that actually got put in there. If he suggested it, because he thought he he thought it was associated with the Olympics, which, given our our information there about it being used in some of the highlight reels, makes sense. If you never saw yes. the movie and you just were watching highlights and you saw this song that worked really, really well, and yeah, very uh, you, that might be the connection you made there, not knowing if you didn't have any kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews who. Had you see that movie, or if maybe if you, if you weren't aware of the context, even if you heard it on the radio, you could make that uh, sort of connection there. So it, it's we're not endorsing any particular politician, and this is not the last one we're talking about here um, in this discussion. But it is kind of interesting. Do you think this song uh, might have kind of an appeal to to politicians in a certain way? It being a Donna Summer song. Certainly, they are more of an age to have appreciated her music. Like, you know, they would have been listening to her and, like, to them, like, that's a sound that I think that they would more quickly grab for than, say, you know, young millennials might. And, and again, if, if they did hear it with the Olympics, as you say, then, then it's just an inspirational song. It's not associated with any pop culture-y thing. So, yeah, in hindsight, it might not have been the weirdest choice for, you know, some moving lyrics to inspire my campaign kind of a thing. But for us who know it is a Pokemon song, it's the weirdest choice. <laughs> Quite possibly, yes. And, and I alluded to earlier that there was another politician. So one thing we found out from my interview with Mark Chait is that uh, 
Herman Cain wasn't the first politician to have an encounter with that song, it seems. Back in probably 2000, uh, that would make the most sense, there was a fundraiser for the uh, Democratic Party in New York, and uh, they, uh, the people who would organize it had picked that song out. And uh, one of the people who was there, presumably for her uh, 2000 Senate run, was Hillary Clinton. And uh, Mark Chait was there, and they brought in a, uh, a singer from, I believe, Broadway to do the actual vocals part. And um, after the speech, uh, Hillary would, went up, talked to, to Mark, and, and told him that uh, your, your song has just totally summed up the entire speech I'm about to give. That's that's amazing. Not Not those exact words, but... It is kind of interesting that the song has become inspirational in that kind of way, more so than, well, in a more broadly uh, applicable way than, say, the original dub Pokemon theme, which obviously is very inspirational to people who grew up then, but outside of that context. This, on the other hand, they've written, they wrote a and produced a, a, a song that seems to just have that kind of broad appeal, which is... It's, like I said, all the way from, you know, everyday people to world leaders is just remarkable. Really, it is. Yeah. I, I mean, there's probably many different factors, like, you know, right place, right time, Donna Summer being so recognizable, like, you know, getting into the Olympics probably helped its recognizability in other areas. But there's just something about Pokemon, too, that, like, because Pokemon has always spoke to world issues, and that's always been a theme in its in the anime and and in the games. Um, sometimes in cases like black and white, getting very political um, in a you know nonpartisan way. So I think there's something wonderful about this song being able to be used in a variety of, of situations, like say in a the Olympic context, or being able to appeal to people who are supposed to be at least making decisions for our countries or, or, you know, trying to bring the world together to solve problems. Like, there's something about that that is very special to me that, you know, this song is the one that was able to speak to us when we were young and watching the movie and also older people who are thinking about something completely different. Yeah, I, I definitely think that other than the original English dub theme, as far as English Pokemon music goes, this is probably number two on, on like the most important list there. Yeah. Um, and I think this is going to have at least some longevity. It may just be eventually just a, a footnote in uh, some sort of future Wikipedia or whatever that uh, some politician running for office referenced this song. But I, I think it's going to have some some legs for time to come. Like I said, even if it's just as kind of a, a footnote in political history or in mass market culture history or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've sort of uh, compared and contrasted that. You know, these are very different songs. They have very different tones. Even compared to the songs from the first movie, the two songs there, while they have different sort of musical styles, they are kind of going for the same effect. These ones, very different. Mm -hmm. Do you have a particular preference of which one you you like better, either as a song or think works better in regards to the movie? Uh, How do do you feel about that? I definitely think um, The Power of One works better for the movie. Hands down. Um, 
Yeah, I kind of have to agree. I don't think Twat Ma is a bad song by any right. means. I do like listening to it when it comes up, you know, wherever. But in terms of being, you know, in a movie ending song or a Pokemon song, I really do have to say that the power of one just blows Twat Ma out of the water. There's, there's not really any contest here. Like I said, Twat Ma, not a bad song. But it, it it definitely gets overshadowed when you when you put to, the two together. Um, so I guess I guess this time, unlike last time where we had a, a a virtual tie where we really couldn't decide between the two, this time, at least as far as like I said, being a a major Pokemon song, being a movie ending song, I think there's a a fairly clear delineation here, and and one of them clearly outshines the other. Uh, it sounds like you agree. I do, as you say, Twaima. Definitely an important, beautiful Pokemon song. I love listening to it. But if, like, stranded on a deserted island and one song can has to encompass Pokemon, or or rather Pokemon 2000, Power of One, easily, easily. Although there are a lot of other songs on that CD um, that also are very fitting. But, yeah, Power of One easily beats out Twaimwa, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I, I think that sort of wraps up our, our main discussion there about the two songs there. Thank you very much, Anne. Oh, thank you. So much fun. This has been Stephen Reich from the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. On the phone with Anne, discussing the merits of the Japanese and English ending themes to the second Pokemon movie. Hi. I'm Stephen Reich from the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Try from the My Life in Gaming YouTube channel. And Try, your channel focuses a lot on various technical aspects of video games in terms of getting them to appear correctly and stuff like that. Uh, but you've also covered specific games, and you also have done some, some kind of interesting uh, how-to-beat videos. Uh, how did a channel like that, how did that get started? Well, uh, Corey and I have known each other uh, online for a long time. I'm one of the founding members of a website called The Backloggery. That's backloggery.com. And it's it's a collection, a game collection tracking site, sort of with a focus on uh, tracking which games you've beat, which games you've uh, left unfinished. And we just met through there and uh, sort of just hit it off because we're both video editors and we met with a bunch of other backloggery people at uh, MAGFest, which is a, a convention, uh, a gaming convention uh, near Washington, D.C. And uh, it, at some point, Corey was like, you know, we should we should make a, a YouTube channel together. You know, we uh, there's not a lot of YouTubers out there that I think have like a professional background in, in video editing, so, so we thought would would be interesting. And the first thing we did was those how to beat uh, videos, sort of inspired by the old VHS tapes that would tell you how to beat Mega Man Two or Ninja Gaiden or something like that. But we did it with modern games, and I think that was that was never intended to be the focus of the channel, but we thought it would be an easy thing to do to get started. Uh, and it was kind of light and funny, uh, not at all the kind of content we we intended to create long term, but it was, a, I think, a good starting choice because it did get us some attention early on. And, and we kind of used that as a, a launching point to get into the, the other types of videos that, that we wanted to make. 
Yeah, well, as I mentioned before, one of the big things your channel focuses on is uh, video quality, uh, a lot of RGB-related topics and, and things like that. How did that all get started? Well, really, that's in a lot of ways, that's kind of the origin of the channel because part of why we decided to make a YouTube channel was because we had been looking at this website, Hazard City. Uh, it's run by this uh, guy in Germany uh, that has so much information on video scalers and stuff and the Framemeister, uh, which is this Japanese upscaling box that uh, you know, you can plug RGB from your retro consoles into it, and you know it's just perfect, crisp pixels, and it's amazing. And we're we're looking at this and thinking, wow, is does this really do what it looks like it's doing? I'm not quite sure. I believe it. And you know, Corey finally bought one. He he showed me some pictures, and I'm like, okay, I, I believe it. And, you know, it's this $300 box, and it's, it's a lot of money, but uh, you know, it's you think about it, it's like the price of a modern console. And if, if retro gaming is important to you, then, you know, it's, it's not that bad of an investment if you really think about it. You know, between that and some capture cards that we bought, we're like, wow, we've got this like awesome setup for capturing real consoles in such high quality. Like we, we should put this to good use, but we did not anticipate really making videos about video quality. We just wanted to have really good quality captures for other videos that we would be making. We, we intended to be making, it's called My Life in Gaming, in part because we wanted to tell stories about games and, and maybe some personal connections that you might have to, the, to those games. Not just us, but we always wanted to interview people. Like, like for example, when we did a Myst episode, uh, we interviewed the creator of Myst. Uh, you know, we wanted to have other people's voices in our videos, you know, if possible. But then we, you know, we wanted to make this video about the Framemeister because it was, it introduced us to the, this whole world of, of high quality capture. And uh, it just took off. Uh, and we're like, well, you know, we could do a whole series about this and all the stuff that, you know, it took us so long to figure out we could like make this, this great resource for, for other people to discover this. Because I think a lot of people didn't, didn't know. I mean, we didn't know until just, four years ago about uh, that, that this kind of stuff was even possible. So it, it's just kind of our way of sharing that information. And it, it was never intended to be the main thing, but it, it kind of has become that. So you have actually, uh, in the RGB series, you have a couple levels. 100 is sort of the basics. 200 is system-specific. 300 is sort of niche topics. So you're, you're coming in. You're going to be having a new 200-level video, hopefully within the next few weeks, about the Game Boy, which is kind of interesting in part because it's a portable console, so it's not something you would normally think would uh, make a great topic necessarily. But as it turns out, you've come across a lot of things, and this is probably going to be your longest video yet. Uh, so how did this? How did this get started? Yeah, it's it's almost twice as long. I'm looking at my timeline right now, which is about maybe. 20 or so percent edited <laughs> and it's uh, an hour and three minutes it's more than twice as long as our longest video uh otherwise uh, yeah it's it's absolutely insane uh, originally early on in the series i was like oh i want to do a video about how to play game boy games on your tv and you know how to get the best quality doing that because uh, you know obviously the options people think of are super game boy on super nintendo and the game boy player on gamecube but there's a lot of nuance there 
But then uh, Bob from RetroRGB.com, he, he's the guy that runs RetroRGB, uh, he's been a huge supporter uh, of ours. Um, and he's got a great website and, and does also does a great YouTube channel where he uh, called the Retro Weekly Roundup. And he was like, you know, I need some space. And I know you're planning to do a Game Boy episode. And I think this was around this time last year, actually. He just sent me this big box full of Game Boy stuff. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking backlit modded Game Boy and Game Boy Pocket, frontlit modded uh, Game Boy Color, uh, original Game Boy Advance with the uh, brighter backlit SP screen put in it, uh, clock modded Super Game Boy, uh, just all kinds of stuff that, that I'd never even even would have really thought of looking into because I, I had this on TV focus. I was like, well, you know, I, I guess we could just do kind of like an all encompassing video, but I'm just going to talk about the handheld stuff, like really, really briefly. <laughs> and, uh, but then, you know, I just start writing the episode and I'm like, I, I it got to the point where I'm like, I, I don't see what, what I can cut out without being as, as comprehensive as I want to be. And it just, it's ended up being this big thing, and you know, there, there's been fleeting thoughts like, oh, maybe we could separate Game Boy and Game Boy Advance into their own episodes, or maybe we can do portables and on TV in, in separate episodes or something. But it's like, man, there'll be so much overlap between them because there's just so much shared uh, between platforms within the Game Boy series, and you kind of have to understand how Game Boy Color works uh, to understand how Game Boy Player works and how Game Boy Color backwards compatibility works on Game Boy Advance and how, you know, Super Game Boy has special palettes that are not recreated on any other official hardware. And so it's it's like, well, let's just include it all in this one massive episode that I'm completely insane for even tackling. Uh, we had hoped that it would release Black Friday. Probably not going to happen. But I I am keeping that mindset that I'm going to release it on Black Friday. It, it, keep, it keeps me motivated. It keeps me that, that glimmer of hope that I could have it done by then. Uh, if, if I don't keep that, then I'm just going to make terrible progress between now and Thanksgiving. But uh, yeah, it's it's intense. But uh, it's, we, we, I know it's going to be big because, you know, people, people are interested to know more about Game Boy. No, definitely. And, and especially, of course, uh, Pokemon fans. Anything in particular you wanted to sort of share that might be specific to the Pokemon games? Well, certainly for Super Game Boy, it's pretty cool because the way it works is it can draw sort of hidden areas in the screen to have entirely separate color palettes. Normally, you can only assign four colors to a, a Super Game Boy game or a Game Boy game in a Super Game Boy. But a Super Game Boy enhanced game like Pokemon Red and Blue and, um, of course, Gen 2, they can... Well, in the battle screen, you, they can basically draw a box around each Pokemon, and they can be their correct color. They aren't bound by the, the four-color limitation because those areas of the screen where those Pokemon exist can have their own color palette. Um, so that's pretty exciting. On the N64 end, uh, we are covering the Wide Boy 64, which was a development uh, tool and, and a press tool for getting uh, Game Boy Color and Game Boy Advance screenshots 
through an N64. Nothing particularly special regarding Pokemon there, but we are going to look a little bit, just a little bit, into the, the emulation through Pokemon Stadium and Pokemon Stadium 2, which is kind of interesting because even though it's emulation, you do get uh, the benefit of the Super Game Boy uh, enhancements there. But uh, you you can use flashcards. This isn't something we're really going to be able to show directly, um, but people have experimented with editing ROM headers to trick the Pokemon Stadium games into loading non-Pokemon games. They basically fool into thinking that it's Pokemon Blue or something like that. Uh, I understand that they kind of crash like when they try to save and stuff like that. So it's not really a reliable method, but it, but it is kind of interesting. Especially if you could use the uh, the double and triple speed options that you can unlock in at least the original Pokemon Stadium to play those games at hyper speed, that might be actually kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, with this overclocked Game Boy that I'm I'm borrowing, like you, you, it's got this dial where you can literally overclock it or underclock it. It's kind of wonky. I I wouldn't really trust it to be honest. I I, I was told that it's actually kind of intended more for people who want to do something with like uh, the Game Boy sound chip for music or something like that. But there, there is a dialogue that you could turn and you could play the game at hyperspeed, though. I think it would be pretty likely to crash from what I've experimented with. All right. Well, we certainly look forward to that uh, Game Boy episode in the near future. Um, in the meantime, uh, where are some of your other plans going forward for the channel? Additional systems, additional topics, uh, what are you looking into? Well, you know, it, it's hard to believe we've gone all year without making a new Sega episode. And Saturn is, is Saturn and Dreamcast are both pretty high priorities. Dreamcast in particular is, is very popularly requested. Uh, so we want to get back to Sega. Uh, we want to do PlayStation 2. We want to do Wii. You know, we, we basically want to do every system that is realistically possible. Original Xbox and, and other RGB topics. We want to talk about SCART switchers. We want to talk about all kinds of things. I mean, we're, you know, and, and outside of RGB, I mean, you know, we, we always want to take a break and, and get to our... Um, Get, get just get to our game focused episodes you know they're usually they're, they're kind of our reprieve from our more technical episodes because they they take they do take less work and uh you know you know they're not as popular but they're sometimes they're just what we want to do and uh we're we're just we're never going to run out of ideas you know we, we talk about that all the time like i, I just can literally cannot imagine i could <laughs> ever run out of ideas it's just uh, there's so many things that we just want to talk about, and there's we've got this list of topics from when we started the channel, and we we haven't done but maybe 15% of them because you know we just keep getting sidetracked by you know the the newest idea we have, and and there's just so much we want to talk about, you know, technical and otherwise. Yeah, it never really ends with this. And, and of course, you know, in this era of the Internet, we've actually had opportunities to learn more as as uh, some of the developers and hardware folks have sort of come out of the woodwork. Um, so there's always going to be more. I think you're right about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so funny. You can come up with new things to talk about for retro stuff, you know, and it's... I think a lot of people don't think about that. They think, you know, just what's old is set and done with. But there's there's so much to it and so much that people still are doing in that world in terms of new developments to modify the hardware and get new results. 
But in the meantime, uh, how can folks find your YouTube channel, and do you have any other social media? Uh, well, we've got, uh, of course, YouTube. It's just youtube.com slash mylifeandgaming. Um, we've also got a at mylifeandgaming Twitter, and then we've got our uh, individual personal accounts. Mine is at triumphforks, <laughs> T-R-Y-4, oh, wait, wait. T-R-Y-U-M-P-H-4-K-S. It's inspired by the, the fish and the wind waker that's, uh, that call the Triforce the Triumph Forks. And Corey is just at Corey C. C-O-U-R-Y-C. Um, and we've also got a Patreon account, just patreon.com slash mylifeandgaming. And that, that has gone a long ways to supporting the channel. We've also got Facebook, but I don't know anything about that. I, I, I don't fool with Facebook, but Corey pays attention to it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Try. This has been Stephen Reich talking to Try of the My Life and Gaming channel about his upcoming Game Boy related episode. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. Yay, tangents! What are what are some songs? Because you say some of them of the others besides Power One were written definitely for the movie. Do you know which ones? Well, definitely Pokemon. Off the top of your head. Um, <laughs> yes. Actually, I kind of have to to give uh, Al a lot of credit there. I think he does a very good job pronouncing the the Pokemon names, even considering the, like the original Pokerap has some mistakes in it. Snorlax, you know, and a few others. I think I think they're all pretty much right in there. And like I said, it's significant in his career. It's the only fully original polka he's ever really published. Are you sure? Is that definitely it was written for this movie, or was it a song he had recorded and written just kind of for fun? I do know that it was, it was recorded in May they- of 2000, because if you dig through his website, he has uh, logs of when a lot of his stuff is recorded, and he, and he has Pokemon written on there for for May 2000. So pretty clearly, that was well after um, his his album before this was Running With Scissors, and that's that's where the saga begins, the Star Wars Episode One song that is arguably better than the movie comes from. Um, oh, <laughs> um, my heart is bleeding a little. <laughs> but it is a good song. <laughs> but, um, and so I, I think actually that that introduced that and Pokemon probably actually helped introduce him to a new generation of fans. You know, people who are young adults now. Mm. Um, a lot of them probably got in through those those two songs. You know, uh, the saga begins was a, a a big, relatively big hit, especially on like Radio Disney, and and that probably helps him land this. Now, the kind of bad news is that a few years later, him and the company that released the second movie soundtrack, Atlantic, had a falling out over his attempt to parody one of their artist songs. He was going to parody parody James Blunt's uh, "Beautiful." And uh, he did. He recorded it, and then before he could put it on his album, the guys from Atlantic said, oh, we really kind of don't want to do that. So he ended up releasing it for free, and they've been kind of at odds ever since. So it'll be hard to say if we ever get a, c- a commercial release of that on some digital platform, which is kind of a shame. Yeah. Uh, other ones that were definitely written for the movie, uh, the B-52 song, The Chosen One, obviously it quotes from the legend from the movie. I think that's really cool. I- a really cool idea there, and it's pretty well executed, because 
is you take the legend from the movie, you know, uh, climb to the shrine to write what is wrong, uh, you know, bring together all three. You, you sort of divorce it from the movie, and it's like, yeah, this is kind of the lyrics to sort of like a uh, some sort of esoteric thing that maybe the uh, – Excuse me. The B-52s would put out as uh, a song there. It's not quite as wacky as I would say something like Rock Lobster or some of their other stuff there, but it it, it works in a very interesting way, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's another one of those songs that's like very odd and strange in some ways, but a very definite choice and vision. And yeah, it works for its one specific context, and that's fine. Let's see. Obviously, the the redo of the Pokemon World theme was done for the movie mm-hmm. with Youngstown and Nobody's Angel. With Youngstown, I think the only other song they're known for is the "I'll Be Your Everything" from the '99 Inspector Gadget movie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Nobody's Angel, I forget what else they did. I don't think they ever got all that much much fame either. Mm-hmm. I think, what else do I know for a fact? Obviously, They Don't Understand is a reworking, I believe. I believe there's a generic version, and then which you can find on Dream Street's album. And then, but the Pokemon version ends up getting released first. And that was, um, so it was kind of reworked. What I think happened, um, if you look at the credits for the Pokemon version of They Don't Understand, there's a person listed named Steve Diamond. And he, uh, I guess, I think he has a son, and his son's name, I believe, is Cole Diamond, C-O-L-E. I know that's, that's not going to judge him as a parent, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I I bet what happened is that his son walked in and said something to the effect of, you know, if you rework this a little bit, this could be a Pokemon song, and that somehow ended up happening. Because the interesting thing is there's this weird little switching around that happened with Pokemon 2000 with some of the songs on there. Um, Pikachu's Rescue Adventure, based on some uh, an interview I did with Pam Shane, who wrote a couple of the songs to the movie, um, it sounds like it was originally going to have Wonderland um, as its opening theme, but they weren't able to get uh, the sync clearing or whatever. They weren't able to clear it to actually be in the movie itself, and that's how we ended up with Coming to the Rescue by O-Town. Mm. But uh, Wonderland itself apparently was supposed to be originally performed by Dream Street and not Angela Via for whatever reason. That that's, a, that's just kind of a weird rearrangement there that just kind of happened with those songs. Pam, I should point out, she also wrote um, Denise Lara's One, not to be confused with the Japanese ending of the 11th Pokemon right. movie. <laughs> In any case, one of the other songs she ended up writing that was not written for the movie but ended up there was uh, The Extra Mile, the Laura Pausini song. I, I hope I pronounced your last name right. I love that song. It was, well, you know where that was originally going to be used, where it was originally intended for. What? The 2000 Summer Olympics. Really? <laughs> so you got this weird switcheroo between the power of one and the extra mile. Because you listen to that song, oh, it makes total sense. It's an athletic song. Yeah. Um, and so it was... Uh, Pam Shane is originally from New Zealand, which, you know, it's not a different country from Australia, but they're very, they have a, it's sort of like Australia, New Zealand is not completely dissimilar to like the US and Canada. Mm. I, I don't know if you'll, hopefully you didn't take too much offense at that. No, or anything, I've, I've but, heard <laughs> similar things from the friends I got living on that side of the world. So I think it's a pretty, <laughs> pretty apt comparison. So originally it was going to be written for that. It got, it either fell through or it got turned down or whatever there. 
And, uh, you know, Laura Fassini is not a native English speaker. She does stuff in Italian, I believe stuff in Spanish as well. She does, like, dual versions of some of her songs. And they worked really hard to get her to be able to sing the song in English without sounding like she had too much of an accent. And she did, I have to say, a really good job there, actually. I would never Um, have guessed. Yeah. I really love that song, though. No, it's... It is. It, so it was released beautiful. on like one version of one of her albums, and it used to be available on iTunes, but it was lost in the 2009 DRM purge, mm. unfortunately, along with like the entire score to the second Pokemon movie, um, and like the Pokemon World single and one or two other things. Unfortunately, and that 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 was really a shame. Um, well, here's oh, a- well, there. I don't know if it was specifically written for the movie. I think it was the devotion to music song. Blah blah blah. Oh yeah. That was an I really do. One. I really like that song. It's 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 written by. There, there's a, a couple of songs that have this these interrelated writers. Uh, blah blah blah, and I forget what else. I know "Flying Without Wings," which is not written at all for the movie. It's it's like the one lone one out that Nintendo doesn't have any of the the rights to. If you look at the credits, uh, and then I think one or two others are all tied together to this guy by the name of Steve Mack, who's from the the UK, hmm. and. Um, it may explain why "Flying Without Wings" is on there. Not that it's a bad song or anything. I, I like the I like the bridge in regards to this movie. I think that's the the yeah. most applicable part. Impossible as they may seem, but um, there's a couple songs on the soundtrack that are sort of part of that that sort of uh, nucleus of of content. So that's where some of that stuff comes from. And then let's see. Like I said, O Town has a couple songs on there. They did "One Heart." Uh, one of the really weird ones is sort of the opposite of the Will Ford Manda situation from the first movie. There's Plus One is on there. Bizarrely, they are a, or were, I think they just reunited a year or two ago. They tried to do a reunion, but, uh, a Christian boy band, <laughs> which if you listen to that song, it does use the word faith a couple times. I, you know, it's, <laughs> you almost wonder if this was some sort of religious song that got reworked to be more about Pokemon, which is, <laughs> Who knows? Like sometimes there's a lot of crossover with they, those they, things. They, so. they they threw in the word "catch them all" in there to, to sort of solidify it, I guess. But let's see. I think, what are some of the the notable ones? Like I said, I think the second movie soundtrack overall about the same quality wise as the first. It's definitely more Pokemon focused, which may have mm-hmm. you know I wouldn't have expected it. It didn't sell anywhere near as well as the first movie soundtrack. First movie soundtrack was double platinum. This one never even cracked gold. So that means double platinum in the U.S. is two million. This didn't even make it to half a million, which is kind of a shame. Mm-hmm. Um, even like to be a master outsold it in this country. Um, maybe it'd be a complete surprise there. But, it is about the time that we were starting to lose a lot of. Oh yeah, that's that's fans. one thing when I watched the end credits of 2000. It's like, oh yeah, the the big the big fall comes right after after this. It's kind of it sort of goes into a trough through the second and third generations before things kind of level off to about yeah. where we are now. Yeah. Um, notwithstanding the huge spike from Pokemon Go, of course, uh, earlier <laughs> but, this year. But that even was... then, that didn't necessarily bring them over to the anime. There's still that Civil War divide. So. Believe me, I know. <laughs> yeah, so... But overall, I, I kind of do wonder if Pokemon had somehow been able to sustain its popularity and they kept doing albums like this for the subsequent movies, 
what those might have looked like, like what songs yeah. that were maybe even decent sized radio hits we would have seen on there. Like would one I I can think of is maybe like uh Jason Mraz, um The Remedy might actually have been made a good Pokemon song at some point. Um if they had kept doing this sort of uh pattern here. That could be a special episode in the future, Pokemon songs that should have been. <laughs> yeah, or like if there was a Pokemon movie soundtrack in blank year, what would have what been would, on uh, it? What would we have put on from that year on there? Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, kind of that one song to rule them all thing. Um, yeah. Besides the the number one track, The Power of One, uh, what other songs stuck out to you? Could, because for me, while I think the power of one is so perfect to the movie. It was actually like not even in my top five of songs on this album that I, you know, really loved and, you know, wore out the CD track on. So like which, which of these songs also kind of stick out to you as being your favorites, I guess, or, well, you know, you know, the, the Pokemon was kind of special because I think I had definitely heard of weird Al before this. I was familiar with at least some of his work, but I, I didn't really get into his, his, Catalog until after this, when I, especially when I went to college, I started collecting all the albums that he had, and that I, I think that sort of that and like I said, the saga begins from the year before, kind of formed kind of a gateway. It's kind of interesting to being more interested in his work, and that you know eventually led me to picking up a copy when it came out on DVD of of his movie UHF. Um, I actually think my mom got me that, got me that, and so on and so forth, moving on from there. So, as far as my personal taste in music, I think that was a, a big influence there. But yeah, I think that, that's most of what's there. Like I said, the, the score, I really wish we still had that available digitally. I would love, like, a concert band score release for, um, The Legend Comes to Life, the, the Lugias. I've heard a rumor on another podcast that they wanted to do something based on Lugia's song for the Pokemon Symphonic Evolutions concert, but they were unable to clear the movie footage to use along with it. Oh, that would have been lovely. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'd love to... Yeah, I, I did concert band in high school. Like, I would have loved to play this song so much. Oh, <laughs> I mean, that would have gotten rousing cheers, because even though you know the second movie didn't gross as well. The second movie soundtrack didn't sell nearly as well. Within the Pokemon fan community, um, I mean, Tears of Life from the first movie is great. People love it. But Lugia's song is the one that sticks around. I, I don't want to say you're not a true fan if you don't like it, but it's it's the one that, if you look like on uh, iTunes or anywhere else, you look for the one that has the most covers, it's, it's going to be Lugia's song. It's, it's yeah. going to have the most covers of any original score element pretty much in the on the English side. Yeah, it's the one that um, that's people That's one reason I wanted to talk about it here is because it was it, it sort of has lasted uh as far as in the in the Pokemon uh music vernacular as sort of this this sort of legendary piece. <laughs> 